You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Well, Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Luke chapter 13. I'm preaching on the subject today, Repent or Perish. Repent or perish. We've been looking through the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at um, we've looked at this man by the name of Luke, this physician, this traveling partner of the Apostle Paul. We believe that Paul probably was in prison when Luke was doing a lot of his research. He was gathering all these facts. He was putting a chronological account, an order of the life of Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and. Uh, He is doing this for his dear friend Theophilus. Today we come to a passage that I've titled, Repent or Perish. And I think how appropriate it is as as a nation, as a a people, that, that we would come to this particular passage of Scripture. There is a scene in Mel Gibson's movie called The Patriot. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's kind of a bloody, gory movie during the time of the the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the battle for our independence as a nation. There's a scene in there, and and I really kind of wanted to show it, but I I didn't do it. But there's a scene where Mel Gibson playing this, this soldier is coming to terms with all of the things in his past. And he's, he's grappling and he's seeing the weight of all of that come bearing down on his life. He says this, as he's sitting there looking through some of his war paraphernalia and things, he said, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can bear. Or he says, it, I think exactly, I believe this is more than I can bear. Today we're looking at the subject of repentance in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. And I haven't even found it yet, so that gives you time to go look. And I've got this new Bible, the pages stick together, so it really takes me a moment. But Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had makes with their sacrifices. Luke chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless, now watch this, but unless you too repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will will perish. Now, this goes all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1. In chapter 12, verse 1, we said that in the latter part of chapter 11, Jesus is leaving the home of the Pharisee. As he comes out, things are very tense. It is a very emotional moment. Luke tells uh, Theophilus in chapter 12, verse 1, he said the crowd was literally in the thousands and they were pressing in on Jesus and they were pressing in on the disciples. And Jesus used this like a parent with a child as a golden opportunity to teach his disciples. 
In chapter 12, he, he says, listen, he says, listen, don't be anxious, don't worry, but be careful, be on guard against the leaven of the, her- of the, of the hypocrites, of the Pharisees, be on guard for that, don't worry. He talks about a variety of different subjects. Then he comes to chapter 12, now the, chapter 13, the crowd is still pressing in on him. And Jesus uses this opportunity to speak again to his disciples and even more so to the crowd. Jesus brings up two events here, two recent events, that both had resulted in the loss of life. Jewish lives. Pilate had killed Galileans while they were offering sacrifices at Passover. Pilate had also been involved in taking temple funds and using them for the construction of an aqueduct there coming into the city of Jerusalem. The Jews that were employed in building that aqueduct in using temple funds, the duck or the tower had fallen. And in the course of that, people's lives had been lost. And the Jews, as they were talking to Jesus about this, what they were saying is, they got their just reward. They were in cahoots with Pilate. They should have never been building that aqueduct, and they, should, aqueduct, and they surely should not have been using temple funds. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to talk about real repentance. William Barclay said this about this passage. He said, The Jews rigidly connected sin and suffering. He quotes Eliphaz, who said to Job in Job 4, 7, Who that was innocent, listen to this, Who that was innocent ever perished. In other words, what Eliphaz said to Job is, innocent people don't perish. Barclay said this was a cruel and heartbreaking doctrine, as Job knew well. And Jesus utterly denied it in the case of these individuals. He goes on to say, as we all know very well, it is often, listen to this, it is often the greatest saints who have suffered the most. Then Jesus again rejects their reasoning. In chapter 13, verse 2 and 3, watch what he says here. He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? What he's saying is, do you think these Galileans who died at the hand of Pilate, do you think they're worse than you are? He said, absolutely not. In verses 4 and 5, he said, do you think those 18 who died when that tower fell on them? He said, do you think they were more guilty than you are? Absolutely not. And then he goes on to say something about repentance. He said in verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Now what does Jesus mean by repentance? Let me say this, I think the church today is confused about repentance. I don't think we understand repentance anymore. And I think because we don't understand it and we haven't grasped it, then the world out there has no understanding of it. Now let me give you an example here. This word, repent, metanoia, means to change one's mind. Now we often say, well, you know, uh, repent means to do a 180. You're not going to do a 180 until you change your mind. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, a man is not going to change his heart until he changes his mind. One writer said this. It means to heartily amend... It means to heartily to amend with an abhorrence of one's own past sins. 
And I went on to write this word, abhor, to abhor something. It means to regard our sin with such contempt, with such disgust. It uses the word grossed out by, we loathe, we scorn, we detest, we despise it so much that we don't want to do it again because we've seen all the cost and the hurt that it's brought into so many people's lives. You see, repentance, metanoia, is a change of mind. Until we have a change of mind, until we allow the mind of Christ to come into here and the power of His Holy Spirit, we'll never view our sin as something that we loathe, that we want to stay away from. In America today, we're not staying away from sin, we're coddling it. We're excusing it. We tend to have the idea that, listen, no matter how people live, no matter what they do, listen, we just reach our arms around them and bring them back. Listen, you're wasting your time unless they're repentant. Repentance is a change of mind. There's a belief today, and I hear this over and over again, you know, that this idea, Curtis, you may hear this, this idea where people come and they're repentant, but their repentance means I want my stuff back. I want my life back the way it was. I want everything the way it was before I started making all these bad choices and beginning to suffer these consequences. I want my life the way it used to be. My friend, we can't live our lives as if the choices that we make bear no consequences. This is what the Bible makes so clear about it. Yes, God can forgive. Yes, God can bring good. The Bible says all things work together. What does that mean? When you and I confess our sin and we repent of it, and we begin to abhor it, we begin to move it out of our lives, leaving it, even the writer of Hebrews said, leaving those weights, those sins which does, and even that one sin which does so easily beset us, then we can run the race. God forgives. Yes, God forgives. Can God use even the broken, charred up, messed up lives that we bring before Him? Yes, He can. But only when you and I are repentant. You know, a dad makes poor choices. When his children are young, dad drinks heavily. He doesn't care anything about spiritual things. Later on, after children are grown, he gets saved. He returns to be dad, but it's too late now. The children are grown. He can repent, he can ask for forgiveness from his children, but he can't erase the past. All he can do is put it in the hand of a holy, sovereign God and say, God, this is it. I've made a mess of this parenting role. I've not been there for my children. I've failed, God. I've gone to them repentant and broken and asked them to forgive me. And now, God, I need you to help me. Grace is God rolling up his sleeves and helping you and I, because what does the Bible say? Here's a principle. Whatever a man sows, that's what he reaps. When we make a bad choice and we reap the consequences of those choices, it's in the midst of reaping those consequences that we finally just fall down on our knees and we look up toward God we say, God, I should have listened to you. I should have followed your word. I should have followed godly counseling. God, here I am, repentant and broken, and I am poor. The mistakes and the sin and the rebellion of my life. And guess what God's doing at that moment? God is rolling up, grace is rolling up its sleeves. And grace is coming down beside you. And grace is lifting you up now and saying, okay, let's make some good out of this. Psalm 51, when David was literally so broken over his sin, he had had committed adultery. 
He had murdered Uriah. And now he was in the midst of a great cover-up. Nathan came and visited the palace and told him a story. And by the end of it said, David, you're the man. Psalm 51. Let me show you something about Psalm 51. David never mentions Bathsheba and adultery. David never mentions that he murdered Uriah. David never mentions the baby that's going to die. David never mentions Nathan, the prophet that confronted him. David looked up toward the heavens. This is repentance. And he said, against God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. My grandmother said the reason America's in the shape that it's in today before she died is we're coming down popping gum and spitting, chewing gum, and we're, about it. we're not repenting at all. My grandmother talked of times when she, she was born in 1902. She said the altar could be full, and she said it could be ours because people were broken in repentance. Jesus said to this group, he said, repent or perish. It's the parable. He goes on to say in verses 6 through 9, then he told this parable, parabaleo. He takes takes a picture and he puts it by spiritual truth. He said a man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but it didn't have any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I have been coming, looking for fruit on this fig tree. Haven't found anything. Cut it down. Why should it use up my soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then let's cut it down. Jesus was simply saying, the Son of Man, God Himself had trekked across the, uh, trekked across the land of Israel. He had shared the word among the Israelites. He had tilled the soil. He had addressed the reeds. He reads, uh, weeds. He had pruned the branches. But still Christ was saying to this group gathered around Him, there's no fruit. And that's what he was saying to Israel. And that's what he says to you and I. That's what he says to America today. My friend, I don't know about you, but I guarantee one thing. If America is not under judgment, then I am a fool. He is literally burning up the land. And what he's not burning up, he's flooding. And what he's not flooding, my friend, he is sending one disaster right after another over and over and over and over and over again. God is saying one thing to America, repent or perish. America thinks it's strong. America thinks it can thumb its nose up toward God and allow such ungodly, immoral, and unethical behavior and take that stuff that comes out of Southern California and throw it all around the world. No wonder the Muslims call us Satan, the great Satan. Jesus was saying to these people, repent or perish. They wouldn't listen. And in 70 AD, the Roman government would come in. The Roman government would take down the walls. They would destroy the temple. And they would take the nation, generations of Jews, and they would scatter them to the end of the world. And in 1948, May 15th, 1948, 2,000 years later, God would do something that has never been recorded in history. He would reach his, through the power of His Spirit and He would gather them from all back from all around the world and He'd slap them right back down there in the middle of Israel again. But I think God is saying to you and I, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Then he goes on in verses 10, and I, he, he, he goes in verse 10 here, on a Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up. She praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered her, You hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all the opponents, all of his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he had done. I not only talk about real repentance, but I like, I, I worded this, this passage, rabid, arabid religion. You know, America doesn't need, you remember that scene in Old Yeller? How many have ever seen Old Yeller? Some of these young people, they don't even have no idea what we're even talking about. Oh, what? As seen in Old Yellow, I think it's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. It's a particular breed of dog, what kind of cur dog, whatever it was. But it was just a massive dog. It saved this boy over and over and over again. It had been his comrade, his companion. This boy had just run the countryside with Old Yeller. This dog was his life. It was his best friend. But that scene toward the end, when that dog one day has been bitten by a rabbit, uh, a rabid other animal, and, and, and his dog begins to demonstrate that it too has rabies. And he has that animal tied up out there, and he goes out there, and this boy so desperately does not want to face it, but the dog is rabid, and the dog is now dangerous. And so the boy finally says, I'll have to put the animal down. And the boy does it. Sometimes I think this is, this is religion. That's religion. It's the belief system of the unrepentant. You see, people who refuse to repent of sin got to have something, some belief system, so they create a religion instead of a relationship. Religion is hypocrites going through the motions. And I can tell you this much. Religion will not save America and will not bring repentance. Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, that Frenchman who studied, he studied the educational systems of this country. He studied the democratic government. He studied the people. He went across up and down the length and the breadth of this land. Went back and wrote the democracy in America. His, 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 his sum total of his, of his study was this that America was great because she is good. If she ceases to be good, she'll cease to be great. He said it is not in her educational, public educational system. He said it is not in her industrial might. He said it's not in her democratic form of government. He said it's not even in her church. He said it was that this right here, it flamed with righteousness. And it kept America good. But they flicker today with need sermons. And we've lost sight of a nation today that needs to be repentant and broken, or God, we stand in the brink of judgment. 
Jesus would say to this crowd that was religious, He was saying to them, religion is not enough. He sees this woman, 18 years she's been bent over, weighed down by disease, weighed down by sin. Luke uses medical terminology in the Greek here. He's a doctor. He talks about the bondage that she's in. This is the picture of sin. This is what sin does. It does to your life. It does to my life. It does to a nation. It weighs us down. It weighs us down. It doubles us over. My grandmother, the saint that she was, was crippled up with arthritis, and you've heard me describe her. Her hands were both twisted and gnarled and held like this. Her arms were twisted like this. She was bent all the way double. She scooted around like this. She could go in there when we were hunting or fishing, and she could cook a pound of bacon, a dozen eggs, and get her grandsons all fueled up to go. But she did everything like this. Imagine my grandmother coming into a service like this and somebody laying their hands on her and bringing healing to her body. She stands up and goes, Whoa! Praise God! And somebody in this church gets mad. That's exactly what happened. The synagogue ruler turned and said, My goodness, this woman has broke the etiquette, broke the Levitical law, broke the law of our day. This should not happen on this Sabbath. She didn't break Levitical law anyway. She broke the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. He said, you'll go untie a donkey on the Sabbath and take it and feed it and give it water. But you don't have no compassion for a woman that for 18 years of her life has been over double. Wow. G. Campbell Morgan said Jesus saw her. Of course He did. He always sees those in dire consequences. And He sees you and He sees me. Bob Smith, one time we were at a convention, Mississippi Baptist Convention. Bob Smith was over on the other side. He was pastoring Manuel Baptist Church there in Greenville. Afterwards, I came down, we met up. I said, Bob, Bob, he came over to me. I said, Bob, I waved and waved. You never did wave back. Now see, the reason that's not funny to some of you is that you don't know Bob's blind. Bob can't see. Of course, we just had a laugh and a joke. Let me tell you something. You have a God that can see. You have a God that sees your heartache. God sees your struggle. God sees the dire consequences in the situation that you're in. And God wants to help it. And religion will never do that. You see, America today is not only not expressing genuine, real, biblical repentance, America today doesn't understand the difference between religion and relationships. You see, God, God, religion is never going to pull America out of the mess that it's in. It is a vibrant New Testament relationship with a loving, sovereign Savior. So here's what I call rabid... Religion. We need this woman set free, and, and yet people are not celebrating. The religion, religion makes mistakes. It forgets the reason for the meeting. Did you forget why we came here? Because that's the danger of a religion. In verse 13, she straightened up and she began to praise God. What held her in bondage was loosed, it was taken away. And I wrote down here, a glorious thing happens when people are set free, they worship. Some of you are in bondage and you don't even know it. 
Religion will have us get called up into order and formalities and ritual and routine. Religion is this. Everyone in this room knows what religion is. Religion is when you take your child and they're burning up with fever and you get to the ER and you're scared to death and you're frightened and they almost look as if their eyes are rolling back in their head. You been there, mom, dad? And you walk in there, this place that you're supposed to be able to bring sick and broken bodies, and you walk in there, and there's this stern voice saying, I'll take the child. There's some forms you need to fill out. And they bring a stack of papers, and these figures begin to gather around you with all the administrative detail, and you're thinking to yourself, my God, I've got a sick child. I need somebody to help. That's religion. Religion doesn't heal anything. Religion doesn't make any difference at all. You know, I thought it was interesting that Jesus brings up here in verses 15 through 17 how they treated animals. We kill the unborn in America. We have the most liberal abortion law in America. We neglect and child abuse is so rampant today. If you don't believe it, it is rampant in this city. Child abuse is, at best I understand, one of the top four killers in America today. We have the most liberal abortion law in the world today. Yet we buy our dog food out of the freezer section and we serve our cats on China. My friend, we, God forgive us. That's religion. That's what religion does. It's a system of belief, but it's a system that's based on hypocrisy. Thirdly, he goes on, I've got to close in a moment. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall it be compared to? He said, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. branches. And he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took, makes it into a large amount of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. He uses mustard seed. He uses leaven. He said, listen, he told him in chapter 12, he said, listen, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, we said this a couple of weeks ago. This is where you and I look and we say, I'm going to accommodate a small amount of evil in my life. Jesus said, don't do that. You can't make a deal with sin and say, I'm going to go this far and no farther. Sin doesn't work that way. This is warfare. This is spiritual warfare, Paul said in Galatians. So here we have the idea that what what Jesus was saying, he's saying, I call it a radical reason. He's saying, listen, the gospel, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It begins very small, but it grows and becomes something very big. It's like yeast in dough. It is silently, systematically working if you will allow it to work and I will allow it to work. Sheila and I got into, I started making bread. Now I'm over it now, but for a while I was making bread. That will kill you. Good gracious. I said, I am so sick of this cardboard bread. I'm going to make my own bread. So buddy, I mean it. I'd I'd learned to make Eva... Eva Simmons, 
banana bread. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. Well, there can't be much more to this bread here. So I went to Rainbow Grocery, thought I'd do it healthy, and bought the stuff, made this bread, and I mean, I ate half the loaf. She ate the other half. I made two loaves. Matt, my son-in-law, ate half a loaf. I said, we can't do this. We don't have no bread. But I want you to know something. There's an enormous amount of work in that bread, but there's something when you put that yeast in it and you begin to knead it into that dough, it will permeate every part of that dough. Jesus was saying, that's the kingdom of God. That's you and I, where we live, in the school, in the office, in the factory, everywhere we go. We are yeast, we're light, we're salt. Making a difference. You may not see us, the beginning may be small in that marriage, in that home, in that school, in that community. It may be unseen a lot of times, quietly under the surface, where somebody in that office, you just look at them in the midst of their calamities and crisis, and you say, I'll be praying for you. That's the yeast. That's the mustard seed. That's the person who walks into Walmart and people know who you are. You walk up to the cashier and you ask her, how's your day going? And she says, man, it's been horrible today. And you look at her and say, I'll be praying for you. I'm going to pray for you. And they don't forget it. Sheila and I were walking through Walmart yesterday. And Sheila started laughing. She said, I can't believe you shopping. Now this was a lady, African American woman, just pushing a buggy like anybody else. She wasn't in uniform or nothing. And she turned and looked at Sheila and just smiled. Said, oh yeah, I shopped too. And they started laughing and talking. I said, who was that? She said, I was one of the cashiers. She's just off today. What Jesus was saying is that's the kingdom of God. And he tells us in verses 22 through 30, he says, listen, you're going to have to strive. You know, in verse 24, I want you to see this, and I know I need to close, but look at verse 24. He goes on, he talks about the narrow door, but look at verse 24. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Listen, what he's saying is, this is a, this is a, here, this is a marathon. When you come down this aisle, listen, when Alexis came up there, and Alexis is being baptized by Curtis, her grandfather, listen, she's begun a marathon. This is not a sprint, this is a marathon. This is through junior high, high school, college, kingdom of God, light, salt, yeast, making a difference in the elementary school, in the junior high school, in the high school. She gets to college, she makes a difference there. She's a, listen, she is a dynamic instrument in the hand of God. She leaves college, maybe she gets married, maybe she has children if Will lets her, lets her get married and all this, lets her date, but she just goes on and on. And she, now listen, she, she gets her education to advance the kingdom of God. She marries to advance the kingdom of God. She has children to advance the kingdom of God. One day Curtis looks down, leans over the banisters of heaven, and generation after generation, working, spreading the kingdom of God. But it's striving. In the Greek here, the word is to agonize. I tell you what, folks, this is not a... Some people do it. Where are they? Some people do it. Some Baptists see these things as get-out-of-hell-free card. Well, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. 
You know, it's, that's all I need. My friend, that is a far cry from what Jesus is saying here. He said this is an agonizing marathon. It is a race that it is a life pursuit. It is a consuming passion. It will cost you everything that you have. In verses 27 and 28, he said some will come to me and they'll come up and they'll say, Lord, here we are. We're ready to come in. He'll say, listen, I don't know you. I know President Obama. I know him. I could pick him out out of a crowd. I know his, his wife and his children's names. I know where he went to school. I can give you a lot of detail and facts about President Obama. I could go to the White House and say to those people that are guarding the White House, say, listen, I'm here to see the President. I know President Obama. But my friend President Obama doesn't know me. There'll be a lot of people that say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we know you. Done a lot of good things for you. And Jesus said, but I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Lastly and finally, I call this a rejected Savior. In verses 31 through 35, at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to Him, not all Pharisees were bad. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the Pharisees, some of them said, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. Boy, I love that. Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons, heal people today, tomorrow on the third day. I will reach my goal in any case. I must keep going today, tomorrow on the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, America, America. You who kill the prophets... You who take the gospel, you who take the Ten Commandments, you who take the gospel, you who take prayer, you who take the Lord's Prayer out of the educational system of this country, you who refuse to recognize the Ten Commandments, the law of God, you who will literally rewrite your history in order to ensure that the younger, the next generation does not know who Jesus even is. The U.S. Open golf tournament was open with the children singing uh, our, our national anthem. When they came to under God, those words were removed. The U.S. Open. And I'm going to tell you this much. We're in that crowd of tens of thousands were Christians when they heard that, that immediately said, I'm off the course. Could you imagine if there'd have been an excess, excess of men and women, godly men and women who love Christ, that would just turn and walk off the course? Could you imagine the news that would have spread across the land, maybe across the world? Could you imagine if some of those golf pros would have simply said, "Hey, wait a minute, did I hear what I thought I heard? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't play in this tournament. I'm out of here." I'm going to tell you something, folks. Nothing will change in America, in America until some people are getting fired until some people are losing their jobs for their faith, while the rest of the world experiences the greatest catastrophic events in the history of the church. More people are dying for the cause of Christ than any other, war, any, any other time in the history of the church. We sit comfortable in pews, worried that we might be ostracized or alienated because we mention the name of Jesus. As Adrian Rogers said, you can talk about prayer of God and a lot of other generic terminology, but you bring up the name Jesus and watch what people do. He was a rejected redeemer. These were good Pharisees. They said, Lord, 
You're in danger. He said, you tell that fox. A fox is sly, destructive, and worthless. What Jesus was saying, fear will not govern my ministry nor my life. I will not hide. Let me close with this. One writer said this. He said, nothing hurts so much as to go to someone and offer your love and have that offer spurned. It is life's bitterest tragedies to give one's heart to someone only to have it broken. That is what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. Now listen to this. And he still comes to us and we still reject him. But the fact remains that to reject God's love is in the end to be in peril of his wrath. I want you to go ahead and stand and ask our musicians to come up. Ledge was, Ledge was telling the story. Uh, uh, Mark Driscoll had told this story. Curtis, I thought this was interesting. It was about a missionary. It was a missionary who it was serving in, I think, India, and it served for many, many, many years. Mark Driscoll tells this story. He said this missionary quietly was living an ungodly, sinful life. Nobody knew it. His family didn't even know it. There came that moment when his family, he left his family, went to New York City and met his homosexual gay lover. He left his family in debt with all of the expenses of their missionary life there on that mission field. They were devastated. The field was devastated because a lot of these people were saying there's nothing to this. Mark Driscoll went on to say that there was a young man, a member of that family, who came to him. I guess undoubtedly he was in his upper part of his education, was here in school or whatever. He was one of the grown children. But he came to him and he said, I want you to pray for my dad. Mark Driscoll said, I'll pray for him, but only if you'll let me pray this prayer. I will pray this. God, either bring him to repentance or kill him. The boy thought for a minute. He looked at Mark Driscoll and finally he said, okay. Mark said they bowed their knees. They prayed right there in his office. He said, God, you either change this man, you either bring him to repentance, or God, you kill him. In a matter of a day or two, the call came to that son. His father in New York City had had a massive heart attack. No hereditary, nothing. His father had had a massive heart attack and dropped dead. I know exactly what Mark Driscoll meant. I knew what he was saying. For all of the work and all the seed that had been sown over there in that country, it would all come to nothing if those people did not see God do something. God did something. He took them out. I'm going to tell you this much. As Alexander the Great said, when he looked at a young man brought by one of his military, there was a scene in history where Alexander's on that white horse, on that majestic horse of his, this conqueror of the world. And one of his soldiers came and had a 16-year-old, just a young kid, and dragging him by the nap of his shirt and threw him down there at the, at the feet of Alexander the Great's horse. He said, he said, General, he said, Alexander, he said, this young man, has caught, he's repeatedly stealing, he's robbing, he's, he's, he's wreaking havoc in our camp. Alexander, this mighty conqueror, looked down at him and he said, Son, he said, uh, what is your name? The boy smiled. 
because his name was Alexander. And so the boy smiled and he said, my name's Alexander, just like yours. They said at that point, at that point, Alexander came down off his horse. He drew his sword and he took the son and he held him by his neck. And he had his sword right up to his neck. And he said, son, he said, you either change your name or you change your behavior. I'm going to tell you what America better do. America better get in God we trust off the coins. We better get it out of our music. We, be, we better cut it out. We better, remove, we better remove God. We better take everything Christian out of... We better just completely say, listen, we are an ungodly, immoral, unethical nation. We are tainting the world with our evil and our influence. We're not going to do it anymore. You want to end the fires? You want to end the funnels? You want to end the floods? You want to end the storms and just take God completely out of it? Because I can tell you this much, He disciplines and loves His children. He disciplines and loves us too much. And I think God would say even from heaven, America, either change your name, change your behavior. I can't let you carry on like this anymore. My friend, I'm telling the last two, the last two earthquakes, the one in Peru, adjusted the earth on its axis according to NASA. Bob Smith said his son in Greenville, he said, Dad, he said, I've got land flooded right next to land in a drought. God is speaking to America. Are we listening? Are we listening? With heads bowed and with eyes closed, our Heavenly Father, Lord, I preached with everything in me. Sometimes I've wondered, will this be the last fourth tomorrow? God, what will it take? What will you do in, the, in, the, in this nation to bring us to repentance and brokenness? Father, to cause men to stand up and be the men that God has called them to be, men of integrity, men of dignity, men that will love their wives and love their children, men that cannot be bought by the world, men who stand boldly for the cause of Christ, men who once again will, will cringe at the, at the sound of your name being used in vain in a movie or in music or anywhere. Men that will once again stand up and look at another man and say, Sir, you can't talk like that in front of my wife and my kids. I can't have that. Men that will be men. Women that will be women. Father, would you speak to us today? And Lord, I pray, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, if there's one here that doesn't know you, these are uncertain times, dear Lord. These are days in which it's dangerous to live and not know You. And Father, I pray if there's one man, one woman, one boy, one girl that doesn't know You, they've never done what Alexis did. They've never been saved. They've never given their heart and their life to You. They've never been baptized. Father, today in this moment that they'll just reach up toward heaven and pray, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin and be my Savior. Be my Lord. Father, for others that may need to recommit, rededicate the life, for others that may need to move their membership, plant their life here. Lord, may they do that today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.